So what we've been doing the last few weeks is going through uh, selected chapters of the book that I wrote that's coming out actually uh, next week, week after, uh, on the 14th of November, it's going to be released. And it's called Daring to Think Again. The premise of the book is that Jesus gave us an original challenge. He gave us a challenge that went through the young man, but it really, um, the rich young man that comes to him and asks, you know, what does he need to do to obtain eternal life? But really, it's the cornerstone to his entire ministry. He told that young man what he needed to do. The one thing he lacked was to sell everything that he possessed, give it to the poor, and come follow him. In our speak today, that means our willingness to let go of everything that we think we know, everything that we cling to for support, everything that we have learned through our lives that gives us the sense of security that we crave, to let that fall, to allow ourselves to move into a place of discomfort, disturbance, you know, and, and see what is right in front of us, maybe for the first time. This is not possible as long as we are holding on with a death grip to everything that we think we know about life and love and faith and church and religion and everything else. He's saying start with a beginner's mind. Let it go. If you can do that. And not only that, this is a challenge with real teeth to it. Because what he's really saying is if you aren't willing, if you are not willing to do this, if you're not willing to let all these preconceptions go, then you simply can't follow me. You can't follow where I'm going. If you think about it, when Jesus tells us that if we will do what he does, if we will take the shape of his journey, which is a descent before the ascent, right? Everything is always an emptying before there's a filling on the other side. And that motif goes throughout Scripture, but it goes throughout Jesus' life. Paul called his birth, the kenosis, the emptying. What happened at the cross was the emptying. And then there's always the ascension on the other side. But what Jesus says, if you will do that, if you'll follow the shape of this journey with me, if you'll accept my challenge, then you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Well, how do we know if we're free? How do we know if something is actually free in our lives? Think about it. What's free still? Well, I guess air is still free. They haven't found a way to tax it. Unless you're a scuba diver, then you've got to pay for it. But otherwise, the thing that we are experiencing as absolutely free is the thing that we don't think about at all. We don't worry about it. We don't plan for it. We don't obsess over it. It doesn't keep us up awake at night. Until I called your attention to it, were you aware of your breathing? It just goes on, whether you know it or not, even whether you're conscious or not. Absolutely free. So unless you have asthma or something... Your breathing is free. You don't think about it. Now contrast that with food. We think about food constantly, don't we? I know you're thinking about the pancakes right now. You're not hearing what I have to say. You're thinking about the pancakes and the bacon. Think about how much of our waking day is about food. The gathering of it, the preparing of it, the working to be able to buy the stuff that we can then gather and prepare. Food is not free. What we're really free of is the thing that we don't think about, the thing that just recedes into the background. Because when we are completely freely connected with something, that's what Jesus would call pure presence. That's what Jesus would call kingdom. The living in that presence, that deep connection, that complete freedom, where we're not thinking about it, we're not worried about it. 
Now, the things that we do think about, the things that we cling to, the things that we keep right in the forefront of our mind, especially if it's our religious beliefs, our theological beliefs, our spiritual practices that we think about and worry over and wondering if we're doing right and all the stuff that we think about, or defending because we know we're right and everybody else is wrong. This is exactly what Jesus is asking us to lay down. Because the moment that we finally do, the moment that thought process goes quiet, we are freely connected. Which means we have to question everything. We don't know which of the things we're carrying around are the things that are limiting us and blocking us. So Jesus is asking us to be willing to lay everything down. And then in the moving out from that quiet space, that beginning space, that born-again space. I mean, nothing is more relevant than being born again into that place of absolute vulnerability and tabula rasa, blank slate, right? That's where we find out which of those things come back to us. But they'll come back to us in a different way. They'll come back to us with that complete freedom. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. He's trying to bring us to pure presence and the freedom, the truth, the kingdom of that experience. Now, in a group setting, however, this is one-on-one, heart-to-heart, right? In a group setting, we've got to have rules. We've got to have an order. We have to have some way and shape of doing things. We have to have practice. We have to have rituals. We have to have some kind of order. If you look at the difference between Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching, it's not that they're teaching something so different. It's that Jesus was teaching to individual hearts, heart-to-heart. Paul is dealing with groups, and he has to put all the rules in place. He has to answer all the questions that are being asked. He has to referee all the fights that are cropping up in all the churches that he is planting and moderating. And so his letters look different because he is now applying this message to the group setting and having to make rules, sometimes arbitrarily, and he says so. I think this is from the Lord, but I'm not sure, so it's just from me for now. But do it anyway, because it's going to help, right? We don't have the questions they were asking, but we have the answers that he was giving. But here's the problem. Very quickly, if not within the group that, the, that Paul is talking to in the next generation, certainly, the rules, the beliefs, the practices, the rituals that were there to help maintain the cohesion of the group so that we could have this pure presence experience now become the end and not the means anymore. The people become identified with the belief systems and the practices and the rituals instead of the truth that those things were supposed to lead us to. And the whole thing gets back to front. The tail starts wagging the dog. And Jesus recognizes this. When Jesus comes on the scene, his home religion of Judaism was absolutely upside down, inside out, back to front, 300 years of the Pharisees honing the law to such a fine pitch and holding all the people to it had become the be-all and end-all of Jewish experience. And Jesus was trying to cut through that. And the only way to do that then and the only way to do that now is to start over. Drop it all. Let it all fall down so that we can have that pure experience and begin again. He's telling us to question things. He's telling us to be willing to prefer less the things that we have clung to for so long so that we can see what's right in front of us. Now, what happens when we do that? Well, first thing is we set ourselves up for a lot of grief, (laughs) both internally. I mean, I can't tell you, and I went through this process, I can't tell you how disturbing it is suddenly to realize that 
everything that you have clung to for support is now somewhere else. And you're bobbing in the ocean with that pure presence in front of you. But it's, it's disorienting. It's disturbing. And the second thing is you're setting yourself up a lot for a lot of grief from external sources because people aren't going to like you upsetting the apple cart. What happens when we do this is we take our belief system and we literally turn it on its head, just as Jesus was doing. The people were absolutely astounded and some of them were freaking out with what Jesus was trying to show them. But he was trying to move them to a deeper place. But the more invested you are in a system, the more resistance you're going to have to change. And that's what we need to take a look at. As we try to answer this challenge of Jesus, where is the resistance? Where are those pressure points? Where are we offended? To take a look at those and say, okay, that's where I need to look. That's where I need to push through. And then finally realize that the beliefs, the theology, the rituals, the practice, it's not that they're wrong. There's nothing wrong with traditional Christianity. It's that it's only right if everything we say we believe and do is leading us toward that experience of pure presence, that place of freedom where we can just be without worrying, thinking, that blessed assurance that, this, that the, uh, the, the hymn talks about. Have that. See, the, the systems don't have any value of their own. Their only value lies in their pointing toward this experience, this heart-to-heart experience that Jesus called kingdom and that he said every single one of us could do if we were willing, as Frank said, to go through that constricted gate, to walk that narrow way. Because it is more difficult than just following the herd. But we're never going to obey our way into kingdom. So all these are part of what we're trying to do. What we've been trying to do at The Effect for the last nearly 13 years and what we're doing here every morning that we gather. Now, 30 years ago when I started my journey, I'll tell you, there weren't many voices speaking this way. There weren't many books that you get off the shelf. There weren't many speakers who were speaking this way. There wasn't a lot of support. In fact, everyone that I was around in my local church was going the other way. They were throwing darts because they didn't understand where I was going. I didn't understand where I was going either. But I just knew I had to go. I knew that this is where I was being drawn. Now, thankfully today, three decades later, these ideas are becoming more mainstream. And they're creating a division within the church, predictably, right? The old guard that is invested in the way things are, the status quo, is really fighting back against this new church that is emerging or this new kind of thinking. There is a way to resolve this if we become willing. And that's the key. Are we willing that even if we don't see eye to eye that we're going to stand shoulder to shoulder? And we are going to live our lives as Jesus lived his, even if we think about it differently. That's the key. That's where hopefully the church is going. So what does it look like when we accept Jesus' challenge? You know, when we look at faith and church and religion from this born again, this beginner's mind point of view. I was just uh, going through my week and doing the reading that I normally do, and I ran across a series from Richard Rohr that he puts out every morning. And uh, on Friday, he had uh, a post where he paraphrased 10 points from a Quaker pastor. Um, His name is Philip Gulley, I think. And he wrote a book called 
get this, If the Church Were Christian. Don't you love that title? And he was talking about this kind of change that can occur and is occurring within the church as we start to move back to first principles, as we start to move back to this pure presence stance, this, this attitude of the heart when we are willing to let things go. And Rohr just paraphrased these ten points. And I want to go through them today because I think they do a really good job not only of describing the changes that occur in us, but it also pinpoints the places where we probably are going to have a lot of resistance and need to look at in our own hearts. And if you've been here at The Effect for any time, it's amazing how every single one of these has been a pressure point, not a pressure point, but a teaching point here, a point at which we have stressed ourselves. Because there's only one truth, right? Anyway, it was fascinating to me to see how these things dovetailed and how they define part of the sea change that occurs when we start to move in this direction and we start to actually accept Jesus' challenge to let go of everything we think we know. So let's take a look at these. I put them into the um, insert. There's one through ten there, so you can take a look at them there. These are uh, Roar's paraphrases, but... Also, then, I added scriptural references because we want everything to be grounded in scripture. Is there scriptural support? Does Jesus really teach these things that this pastor, that we have gleaned and have been trying to live for this past decade plus? Take a look at the first one. Jesus is a model for living more than an object of worship. Wow. Okay. Is there any support for that? Take a look over at John sixteen seven. I didn't have room to put them in the insert, but I'm sure Brandon's getting them up on the screens. John sixteen seven was, But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now what's the scene for this? This is Jesus in John right at the end of the Lord's Supper. He's getting ready to head out into the garden and be arrested and all the events of, of Holy Week take place. The guys are freaking out. The followers are freaking out. You know, where are you going? Can we go with you? Why can't we go with you? Why don't we understand? How can you leave us? Everything that they had built up, everything that they were hanging on to and clinging to for the past three years plus that they were following Jesus is suddenly what? Where is it going? It's all just vaporizing? What do we do now? We believed in you. Can you imagine the stress? Can you imagine the anxiety? Can you imagine the anger, the frustration that they would have been feeling when Jesus is saying, I have to go? But he's saying, it's to your advantage that I do. Why? Because he knows that they need to engage. Even up to the point of the crucifixion and afterwards, his followers still didn't get it. They didn't really understand what Jesus was about. They still thought he was going to bring a physical kingdom and they were going to get to sit at the places of honor and exercise power over the people. They still didn't understand. It wasn't until he left that they would have to engage themselves directly with spirit. And of course, Pentecost is a result of that. Where they were empowered. And then what Jesus told them, these things that you see me do, you will do, and greater things than these, they were doing. But they had to engage They needed to understand that Jesus wasn't just an icon to cling to. He wasn't a leader to draft after. 
And for us, 2,000 years later, he's not an object of worship that we keep on a pedestal or keep on the wall so that we can remain passive. But that the same challenge applies. Will you engage? Will you directly engage with spirit in such a way that your life changes? That you are actively involved in this? There are so many places in the Gospels where Jesus is trying to get this across to his followers. I can't do this for you. I can open the way. I can show you the door. But you have to walk through. It's a sea change in the way that we look at things. And closely connected with that is the next one. Affirming people's potential is more important than reminding them of their brokenness. Woo. The church for 2,000 years has constantly been reminding us, or at least 1,700 years, has been constantly reminding us what a sinful people we are. Isn't it? How broken, how sinful, how evil, how depraved. What is Calvinism? Wow, Calvinism. What did Calvin come up with? We are completely and totally depraved at birth. Original sin covers us. We are separated from God by this huge chasm, and there's absolutely nothing that we can do about it. And furthermore, those who God has decided to save have already been pre-selected before you were born. The rest of you, not so much. This is classical Calvinism. Jonathan Edwards, in this country, and during the colonial time, he had a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I don't know if you've ever heard it or read it. Read it sometime. Look it up on the internet. He is basically saying the same thing. He likens every human being to a loathsome spider that God is holding over the fire ready to drop in because of our depravity. But if we are that bad, if we keep being reminded that we're that bad, what does that do to us? It puts us back into that passive place. There's nothing I can do. And if I'm in a Calvinistic or Reformed church, then it's already been decided. I just got to live out my life and find out where I go. It is stasis. It is the opposite of engagement. Jesus wants us to engage. Take a look at John 8, starting at verse 10. Jesus straightened up and asked her. This is the scene where he's teaching in the synagogue, and the Pharisees and other leaders bring a woman to her that they say was caught in the very act of adultery, and our law says that we can stone her. What do you say, Jesus? They're trying to trap him, because either way he answers, he's going to you know, tick someone off and lose following, lose face. So Jesus, after he goes through the process of saying, hey, whoever of you is without sin, cast the first stone. And they all kind of filter away. And when they're all gone, Jesus straightens back up. He had stooped down to write in the ground, which is an interesting detail. Jesus straightens up and asks the woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. He doesn't have to tell her how broken she is. He doesn't have to tell her how she messed up. She knows. What's he going to pile on? But now that you have been given this, I'm not condemning you. Now that you've been given this reprieve, stop making those kind of choices. Make different choices so that your relationships can be real. The effect started as a recovery ministry. We've been working with recovering people. I've been working with recovering people, addicts and alcoholics, for nearly 20 years now. One thing I learned 
absolutely early on, is I did not need to tell an addict or an alcoholic how much they had messed up. They already knew that. In fact, most of the reason that they were an alcoholic or addict was because they felt that they had messed up, that they felt that they were unworthy, unacceptable, and no place else to go. That's not what I needed to do. What I needed to do was to show them that there was a potential for something else. Jesus is showing the woman there's a potential for your life that you aren't realizing because you don't realize who you are. That you're a daughter of my father. And you can go in a completely different direction. Those two work hand in glove. The third one, the work of reconciliation should be valued over making judgments. Wow. Jesus is all about unity. He's all about this pure presence that we've been talking about this morning. Everything about judgment is division. When our minds judge, when our minds reach a conclusion about something, we put them into little categories and boxes that are separate from all the other categories and boxes. In fact, that's what our thinking mind does, the egoic mind. What it does is detail, label, catalog, differentiate, make distinctions, create edges around things that we can actually understand and grab and hold on to and then put some place in our minds so that we can deal with life. It's a necessary function of what we've got to do. But when we can't turn that off, when we think that's all that we are, then life becomes a series of us's and them's. It becomes everything separate in little boxes and places and niches on the wall, and there's never any connection. And we're always thinking about these differences. And if we're thinking about the differences, then we're not really present. If we're thinking about the differences, we're not really free. Jesus at Matthew 7 says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. God isn't doing that. We're doing it to ourselves. It sounds like God's going to do it, which further drives our pathology, doesn't it? But that's not what it's about. It's us doing it to ourselves because of the mindset that we are captive to that Jesus is trying to break us out of. And then he goes on, Why do you look at the little speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The work of reconciliation. It's not about us lording it over an inferior us coming down from our high place or riding in on our white horse to fix somebody. It's about working together to realize we're in the boat together, rowing to where we want to go together. A completely different connection, a completely different relationship that binds us together rather than separates us out. And closely related to that one is number four. Gracious behavior is more important than right belief. See, the judgments that we form or the judgments that were given to us by our teachers, by our church, pastors, society, we can imagine those as being virtuous expressions of right believing. We're right. Everybody else is wrong, obviously. If we're right, everyone else has to be wrong because there's only one right place. And so when we've landed on that right place, then we judge everything else accordingly. But 
That belief, as we said before, is only valuable if it's leading us to connection, leading us to gracious behavior. If it's not doing that, then it's not true, quote-unquote. See that? What does Jesus say? Matthew 5, verse 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother and your sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. The rituals don't matter. There's nothing magic about the ritual at the altar. Remember, the sacrament is only the outward expression of an inward transformation. It's the heart that sanctifies the sacrament. It's the heart that brings the connection. It's the heart that leads to gracious behavior. Jesus is saying, develop that. Fix that relationship. Act graciously, lovingly. And then go back and fulfill your, your ritual under the law. Fulfill your sacrament so that the community recognizes that you have fulfilled everything that the community needs in order to have its order, to have its ritual in place. But never forget, it's your heart that drives this process and not the other way around. have to understand this. Five. This is a great one because it fits right into the theme, right? Inviting questions is more valuable than supplying answers. (laughs) Read through the red letters of the Gospels. Jesus never answers a direct question with a direct answer. It is so frustrating. Were you ever frustrated by that? I mean, will you just speak plainly, Jesus? Come on. I mean, when I was first trying to get into Scripture, I'm reading this stuff, it was just make me crazy. I need an answer. I mean, even when they ask him, where are you going? Where are you staying, Jesus? What does he say? Come and see. And that's the one I have, isn't it? Uh, What did I do for number five? Number five. Did I do that one? I think I did a different one. Okay, John 1, starting at verse 35. Again, the next day, John, this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by. Wouldn't that be just cool? You're just standing there talking and Jesus walks by. I mean, I don't know. That's just kind of cool. I just, just kind of flashed on that. What would you give? To just be standing there talking to your friends and Jesus walks by. And John says, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and they turned and followed Jesus, of course. And Jesus turned and saw them following and he said to them, What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. See, again, this engagement Always the call to engage, not to give a pat answer that we can passively accept mentally and say, okay, teacher said it, it's true, I accept it, and now what? Hunker down and wait for the rapture or for death or something. What is going on? Jesus, no, come and see. Good master, you know, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Why do you call me good? There's only one, your father in heaven, who's good. Why are you calling me good? Why? Because he knew that that man was steeped in the law, steeped in obeying his way into eternal life. And Jesus has to snap him out of it. Come on. It's about your connection with what is really good. Not just looking at me as another arbiter of rules that you can follow more perfectly. See how this works? See what Jesus is trying to do? 
We don't go from answer to answer in life. We go from question to more and more incisive and pertinent question in life. Because life doesn't resolve the way we would like it to in our judging minds, does it? Driving us deeper into the mystery, deeper into the experience, more and more. I'm sure some of you, if you've lived long enough, you realize the more that you know, the more you realize you don't know. That's the experience of life. That's where Jesus is trying to drive us into, to drop our preconceptions that we can ever figure this out or that there's some answer out there that will just solve everything for us and make the rest of life a risk-free venture. Not going to happen. Moving back into the mystery with still the persistent sense of risk in terms of the decisions we make, but with that blessed assurance that says we can't really go wrong at the same time. Number six, which is related to number five, encouraging the personal search is more important than group uniformity. Matthew 5.20 was uh, one of the verses. we got two verses here that are kind of our signature verses. Um, one I ended the prayer with, First uh, John 4.19, we love because he first loved us, of course, is one of them. But the other is here at Matthew 5.20. This is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. This is where Jesus has said, hey, I'm not here to abolish the law, but I am here to fulfill it in a very particular way. The law is going to continue until heaven and earth pass away, which in Aramaic means to cross boundaries and merge, either in our own hearts, and we won't need the law anymore because it's written on our hearts, or in the life of our community. But then here at verse 20, he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And you have to imagine every one of his followers' jaw on their chests. Because how in the world do you surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? They wrote this law. First of all, they extracted this law out of what they understood of the written text. 613 written laws is what they pulled out of the Old Testament. And they held those as sacrosanct. And then there was an oral tradition of thousands upon thousands of what they called hedges and fences around each one of the written laws so that you would have to break a bunch of informal oral laws before you actually broke a written law, which was really bad. But of course, like everything else, the oral tradition became, in some cases, more binding than the actual written laws that they were meant to protect. And the people's lives became an absolute nightmare of trying to comply and all the burdens that were placed on them because of all this oral tradition. How in the world were you supposed to be better than that? How were you supposed to surpass that absolute slavish devotion to uniformity of the law? Well, Jesus tells them in the following verses. He says, you think because you haven't murdered someone that you're safe, that you're all good under the law. But here I am to tell you, even if you have an angry thought against your fellow person, you're already guilty. And if you let that escalate to where you're actually speaking verbal abuse that will guarantee a physical response, then you're going to end up right where you said that you weren't going to go. You think because you haven't committed adultery that you're clean and safe. But even if you've had a lustful thought for someone else, you've already started to break down the relationship that you're in. This is how Jesus is going to fulfill the law. 
not by slavishly following the code or the letter of the law, but by bringing in what the law was all about, what its purpose was, which was to bind the group together, to bind individuals together, to make them strong, to allow them to survive, and to bring the awareness of God's presence into every moment. This was the purpose of the law. Once you have that written on your heart, everything changes. You tend to the little things before they become big things. You aren't constantly worrying about the law or whether you broke it or not because you are being guided by something much deeper that always has the purpose of the law at heart. This is where Jesus is trying to bring all of us Stop thinking you can obey your way into kingdom. It's not going to happen. In fact, the more you try, the further away that you get because you're more involved in thought processes and you're not freely present anymore. Number seven, meeting actual needs is more important than maintaining institutions. i uh, got to love this one. This one is the one that really got Jesus into trouble, right? This is what got him killed eventually. Meeting actual needs is more important than maintaining institutions. Every one of the Sabbath controversies was right on point to this, right here. Number seven, look at Matthew 12, starting at verse 9. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue. Where was there? He was walking through grain fields with his friends, and they were hungry. And so they were picking off the kernels of grain and munching on them, and they got gigged for that because it was the Sabbath. You're eating on the Sabbath. Well, really, there was nothing wrong. The Old Testament law allowed you to pick grain and eat it if you were hungry, even on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees had an oral tradition against winnowing, which was separating the wheat from the chaff, right? And so as soon as they rubbed those heads in their hand to get the kernel out, that was breaking their oral law. Amazing how that works, right? And so this is what Jesus just went through. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And so they might accuse him. And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep. So then, yes, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. See, even the Pharisees, if their livestock fell into a pit, fell into a well on the Sabbath, yes, they would pull it. There's financial investment there. We're not going to leave it overnight. It might get sick. It might die. I'm going to pull that thing out. But heal a withered man's, a hand, man's withered hand, one of their oral traditions, because on the Sabbath, the only thing the Old Testament says about what you can't do on the Sabbath is kindle the fire and do servile work. Just like real simple laws, they don't define anything. What does servile work mean? Now we're into all of the thousands of rules and regulations. You know, Kindling a fire. If I light it before sundown on Friday, can I use it? because I didn't kindle it, all these questions arise as we try to apply this to real life. You see, this is where all this has gone. And so they're trying to establish. So one of the things that the, the Pharisees gleaned was if an injury was life-threatening, you could heal it on the Sabbath. But if it wasn't, you had to wait. So if, you broke, if your son broke an arm, you couldn't set the bone on the Sabbath because it wasn't life-threatening. They said, well, you can pour cold water on it, and if it heals, it heals. (laughs) 
Now, do you think parents were really following this? I doubt it. But this is where their mindset was. And Jesus said, look, you're being hypocritical here. You would pull your sheep out of the well, but you're not going to lift a finger to help this man. Obviously, meeting actual needs is more important than maintaining your institution, your establishment, your power base. And of course, that went over real well with him as well. Number eight, peacemaking is more important than power. Peacemaking is more important than power. This is real easy for us to misunderstand. Look at Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is right out of the Beatitudes. See, our problem is, first of all, when we think of peace, we think of the absence of conflict or the absence of war. But to a Jew, peace, shalom, or shlama in Aramaic means something much, much more. Peace is the full amount of health and wealth, prosperity, connection, relationship that a person could have. It was the fullness of their life. Literally what Jesus would call kingdom is shalom. They would use it as a greeting. Shalom, peace to you, health to you, wealth to you, everything to you. May your life have the fullest amount of everything that it can have. That's peace. And the maker of peace is not someone who just runs in and stops a fight. Because that, cre- that requires power, doesn't it? The peacemaker has to be more powerful than the combatants if the peacemaker is actually going to stop the conflict. But this is not what Jesus is talking. The word he uses there, love day, for, for the makers of peace, has agricultural roots to it in the, in, in the understanding of the word. It has the image of someone who shows up every day patiently, who is committed to a process, committed to a purpose, showing up every single day like a farmer would, preparing the soil, planting the seeds, watering the seeds, tilling, uh, pulling the weeds, watching for wind and weather, watching for the little critters that might come and, and eat the stalks, everything, every single day tending the tiniest details. In other words, the peacemaker is someone who would be absolutely invisible to us because of their regularity. They just show up every day and do what they do, calling no attention to themselves, but committed to the process of shalom every single day. It's not spectacular. It doesn't require power. It requires commitment. It requires showing up. This is what Jesus is talking about. The peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The Son of God is the one who represents God. In Hebrew thought, the Son of the Father stands with all the authority. Everything that the Father is is represented in the Son. That's what we're doing when day by day, vulnerably, humbly, unspectacularly, we keep showing up to try to create the most health, wealth, connection, relationship for everyone who's around us. How about the next one? You ready? Caring more about love and less about sex. (laughs) Oh, here we go again. I'm going to be in trouble with my wife. (laughs) Talking about sex again on Sunday morning. But think about it. The church is sort of obsessed with it. Maybe it's our Puritan roots. The Puritans were so... Puritan, right? That's a word that we use to describe someone who's prudish. And I, I suppose that's part of our culture. 
But the church has always been talking about what we can and can't do and seeming to hold out sexual sin as the worst of all possible sins and creating this sort of hyper-awareness and this, this, this hyper-shame involved with sex to, to the degree that in the Middle Ages... Uh, marriage was considered a lowly state, spiritually speaking. Celibacy was the high state. Marriage was the low state. I mean, if you fell into that, okay, but, you know. Whole skewing of this because of these attitudes. With all that has been talked about on the subject by the church over the centuries, some Biblical commentators have counted, because they like to count things, how many times Jesus actually made a pronouncement about some sort of behavior, some sort of either a command or, or an exhortation. And some of the counts go as high as over 200 times. Do you notice that there is no verse citation here? You know why? Jesus never addresses the subject. Ever. You look it up. See if you can find. Oh, he'll talk about marriage and divorce and, and, and remarriage. And we did say that he talked about adultery, but that was really in the context of maintaining relationship. It wasn't about this itself. If we just follow Jesus prioritizing, yes, obviously there are guidelines for our sexual behavior. That's true. But what if, and tied to number two, affirming people's potential rather than just reminding them of their brokenness, what if, like Jesus, we worked on establishing, maintaining, and nurturing good relationships rather than constantly pounding on the negative of what we shouldn't do? It's just, again, the sea change, a different way of looking at things. Finally, life in this world is more important than the afterlife. Life in this world is more important than the afterlife. Everything about Christianity, especially in the West, is focused on the afterlife. That's our reward. We sing songs that say, you know, when this life is over, I'll fly away as if our souls are incarcerated in an inferior place, just yearning to go back to the freedom before we were born. We have this strange idea that this life is just a veil of tears that we have to somehow endure and not break the contract with God so that we can go back to where we came from and be free again. And yet, life in this world is more important than the afterlife. Luke 17, verse 20. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is. Because the kingdom of God It's in your midst. It's within you. It's among you. All of those words, all of those translations are part of the Greek word. Entos. They're all valid. And then if you go to the Aramaic word, legaumen, it means moving dynamically, forcefully from inside to outside. It's a whole different trip that Jesus is trying to get across to us. It's not out there someplace. It's not in the future someplace. It's right here, right now. Mark 1.15. The waiting is over. The kingdom is now. The kingdom is here. The only place you will ever experience it is now, is here. And maybe this isn't as on point as you think it should be for such a big point. But it's because Jesus didn't have to say something to people that were already steeped in this particular truth. Everything about Judaism 
is focused on this life here and now and not the next life. They don't even have a doctrine about the next life because that's God's domain. And because God is who he is, all just and all compassionate, if we just do our jobs here, which is to live between heaven and earth and merge the two, everything in the olam haba, the world to come, will take care of itself and be just fine. And it's not that the world to come, the afterlife, is not important. It absolutely is important, of course. But it's only important the moment it becomes now. If it's not here, it is not an intersection point for us and God's Spirit. We will only and ever have pure presence and connection with God at the intersection of here and now. That's the only place. That's where Jews are focused. That's where Jesus is focused. That's what kingdom means. We lost it because of our overlaying of Greek philosophy after the second century on. But returning to it, this is what we're trying to do. When we accept Jesus' challenge to sell and let go everything that we're clinging to, this is dangerous stuff. Look at that. You know? In many churches, I'm going to be ridden out on a rail for saying these things. You know? I wouldn't even be here in the first place. It lays an axe right to the root of the power of an institution, what Jesus is talking about here, if you have bought my connection to Jesus here. But that's what he was doing. The institution had grown to the point that it had come between the people and their God. It stood squarely between them. It blocked them from having relationship. And Jesus was trying to bring that relationship back, which means he had to deconstruct the institution and its power in people's lives so that they had the permission and the ability to connect directly. This is what Jesus is trying to do. The institution, our faith, our belief system serves us is supposed to direct us, guide us, enable us to have that direct connection with our God. And if it's not doing that, then it's just in the way. And Jesus would say, question it. Be willing to sell it and let it go. Let common sense return so that we realize that, of course, this is all gracious living. To think that we could live any other way and be a follower of Jesus was our first mistake. But because we thought the belief system itself was the truth and not the behavior and the experience it was supposed to allow, that's why we lost our way. And then in the freedom of this truth of pure presence, we can finally see what really matters along the way. And this way, Jesus said, was the only way. The only way to Father But once you've traveled it a bit, engaged it yourself, first person, not just hearsay. Now, you may not express your convictions in the same way that these are expressed. But if they allow you to live your life the way Jesus lived his, then they are absolutely true. And that's what Jesus is trying to get us to understand. It is our relationship directly with our Father that directly affects the choices we make and the quality of our relationships that is kingdom right here, right now. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the courage of so many of your followers who have gone before us 
re-illuminating the trail that Jesus blazed, I suppose. The way that he showed us back to you and everyone who has taken it seriously, show us how we need to take it seriously. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to take it seriously. Help us to become willing to be disturbed for a time so that we can find that assurance that lets us know that even though life remains difficult and at times risky and traumatic, that we know that we know that we are cared for, we are loved, and everything will be well. That's who you are. Thank you, Father, for being that God. Thank you for loving us as you do. Never let us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.